Chapter 4, Top 10 Crypto Monies of 2024. 4.0 Bitcoin and other digital monies. For years, I've been of the opinion that Bitcoin and crypto are two completely different financial innovations. Bitcoin is a new form of digital money secured by novel technology, while other crypto projects are decentralized technologies secured by a novel type of asset. You know, for years, I've been of the opinion that Bitcoin and crypto are two completely different financial innovations. Bitcoin is a new form of digital money secured by novel technology, while other crypto projects are decentralized technologies secured by a novel type of asset. That may seem pedantic, but I think the ordering is important. A Bitcoin truly is digital gold transmuted from physical energy sources and a peer-to-peer -peer global competition for computing power. By contrast, Ethereum, DeFi, DePin, etc., are fundamentally financial platforms that would work just fine in semi-centralized contexts. But they also work on a decentralized basis thanks to the tokens that undergird them, which help align diverse global stakeholders. In important respects, these non-money crypto tokens have less in common with Bitcoin than other digital monies, stablecoins, or RWAs that sit on top of them. If you're in crypto for the tech, we'll have plenty of sections covering the apps and infrastructure that go beyond money in the chapters ahead. But as a starting point, we'll first cover the mega trend towards digital money, starting with Bitcoin, stablecoins, and CBDCs. 4.1 Bitcoin is the Godzilla of finance. Digital gold has never had more tailwinds. I teased some of the market structure dynamics at the very beginning of this report, but it is worth going into further detail here. Thoughts and prayers for the bears when, one, a spot Bitcoin ETF is finally approved. This January could begin a new era of institutional adoption. ETFs are about accessibility, click buy with existing Wall Street counterparties and workflows, and state signaling the SEC would be blessing Bitcoin's right to exist and flourish in the U.S. The spot ETFs are properly hyped and may still be underestimated in their importance. Mike Novogratz made the point at Mainnet that Wall Street products get sold, not bought, and giving incentives to the world's top financial salesmen to hawk Bitcoin will indeed prove to be a bonanza for the industry. Raul Paul and Scaramucci agreed. More financial veterans will begin to see the same stats that investors like Paul Tudor Jones have seen for years now. Bitcoin holders simply don't sell, and the light bulbs will start going off all across Manhattan. Two, concerns about currency debasement run high. Bitcoin took a lot of flack for not performing well during the high inflation period of 2022, but I've always found that to be a silly critique. It did phenomenally well in 2020-2021 as a predictor and front-runner of inflation and, more importantly, of monetary debasement. It's once again the fastest horse among global debasement hedges as central banks begin to think about restarting QE. Many economists believe the only way out from under our crippling national debt is through a multi-year period of high inflation. Debasement is inevitable. Three, the accountants are on our side. Favorable accounting changes from the Financial Accounting Standards Board, FASB, now allow public companies to hold Bitcoin on their balance sheets at market value, enhancing its legitimacy as an asset class and removing what had been an unfair millstone around the necks of corporate treasurers. 
This is underappreciated, especially now that Michael Saylor's MicroStrategy is sitting above its cost basis on a mammoth Bitcoin position. More corporates will begin to come around, especially after the SEC approves the spot ETF. Uh, four, the Bitcoin protest vote is real. Bitcoin's decentralized nature, limited supply, and culture make it a potential beneficiary of libertarian political movements, especially in countries like Argentina, where Austrian economist Javier Millet just won a landslide election after promising to abolish the perennially failing Central Bank of Argentina. I think Bitcoin's role in protests, vote with your wallet, could emerge in dozens of countries with economic distress and political unrest driven by financial policy. Yes, that includes the U.S. leading up to the 2024 election. As individuals seek alternative stores of value and declare financial independence, Bitcoin may gain traction as a political statement. Five, we canceled a country last year. I still don't think most people appreciate the long-term ripple effects we will feel from our aggressive use of financial sanctions against Russia. You can't seize another country's assets en masse and still maintain blind faith in the dollar system and its viability as a neutral global reserve. I wrote about Zoltan Posar's outside money thesis in last year's report, and it holds up remarkably well. Posar believes we are entering a period of prolonged high inflation and mass movement away from the dollar as a reserve currency as more trade settles in euros, renminbi, and gold rather than dollars. Six, the trend towards digital cash is obvious and unrelenting. As the world transitions toward digital assets and a cashless society, Bitcoin is likely to capture demand from those who want assets that are difficult to surveil and seize. Stablecoins, for all their potential, can't really offer that. In the aftermath of the Terra Luna collapse, it's unclear whether we'll ever be able to bootstrap a purely algorithmic stablecoin. If you want full control over your money, Bitcoin is still the best game in town. Seven, Bitcoin's upcoming halving reinforces its scarcity and 21 million coin meme. This resonates with investors seeking a hedge against monetary expansion. The quadrennial halving event, which will next occur in mid-2024, is free, powerful marketing. It's less about the positive supply shock. A halving from 3% to 1.5% is less impactful than the 2012 halving from 25% to 12.5%, and more about the simplicity and consistency of the message. Central bankers may command the attention of the Wall Street traders glued to their Bloomberg terminals, but there's no need for high priests with a monetary policy this simple. Eight, negative catalysts from whale sellers are diminished. The closing of the GBTC ETF NAV discount, more later, the utter destruction of the crypto lending markets, lower cascading liquidation risks, and the delay in the distribution of Bitcoin to Mt. Gox bankruptcy victims, again, cut back on areas of obvious potential selling pressure. There has never been a more diamond-handed Bitcoin holder base. If you run over a baby lizard with a truck and it shrugs off the blow, then grows 10 times larger, and then you run it over again, and the now adult-sized lizard once again 10Xs in size. And then you do that a couple more times, and the same thing keeps happening. You're not dealing with a lizard, you're dealing with Godzilla. Bitcoin in 2024-ish Godzilla. 4.2 Bitcoin security model and assumptions. From the above, 
You can probably gather that I like Bitcoin, but that doesn't mean I don't like to poke my finger in the eye of the Bitcoin religious community, the maximalists, every once in a while by reminding them Bitcoin's security model might be broken long term. This is generally not a controversial position amongst rational people. Hasu, Nick, and I, among others, have talked about this openly as a known risk for half a decade at least. It's fairly straightforward at some point in uh, the not-so-distant future, the, the rate of new Bitcoin issuance to miners via Coinbase, Coinbase rewards will be very low relative to the size of the market those miners are actually securing. On-chain transaction fees must increase over time in order to offset the predictable decline in Bitcoin seniorage over the halving schedule. But we haven't seen any evidence of that happening historically. Bitcoin's entire transaction security model depends on economically aligned miners who compete for marginal revenue that is greater than their marginal cost of energy and mining equipment capex. As such, you get only three options for long-term survival. Applications that pay a lot of fees emerge on top of Bitcoin, creating ongoing incentives for miners. There will eventually be an amendment to the 21 million Bitcoin soft cap to ensure Bitcoin miners some minimal per block seniorage or Bitcoin mining will eventually switch over to proof of stake. Otherwise, the network fails, the fourth option. I'd assign a roughly equal probability to all four outcomes. One, apps generate fees. We'll cover ordinals and inscriptions later on, but Bitcoin had a couple flash-in-the-pan applications in 2023 that hint at future potential for Bitcoin native applications. I wouldn't bet the farm on this happening, since Ethereum and other smart contract platforms have many years worth of a head start and more flexible programming languages. But I appreciate Udi and Eric trying. Eric also had the best two-minute clip of the year for what it's worth. That said, initiatives to utilize Bitcoin as a DA layer for sovereign ZK rollups could marry the mature smart contract development environments with Bitcoin block space and drive fees. Two, soft cap with ongoing proof of work. I think I was the earliest person to write about this in a meaningful way, but I'm happy to review alternative evidence. As I explained in mid-2015, all Bitcoin really needs to do is remain less inflationary than its fiat brethren and stored value competitors. The network could reach consensus on an inflation rate that is just below the next strongest reserve currency or the annual mining output of the gold industry and Bitcoin would still win. In the process, those subsidies would guarantee that Bitcoin would always win as a payment rail over centralized competitors like correspondent banks and card networks because transaction fees could remain artificially low. Three, hard cap migration to proof of stake. It's conceivable that Bitcoin transitions to a proof of stake environment in which holders are incentivized to stake BTC in order to collect on-chain transaction fees themselves. This is blasphemy to Bitcoin maximalists, but it is also functionally indistinguishable as a thought experiment from what would happen after all seniorage runs out in 100 years if fees do not rise. Using today's ballpark annualized figures, a network that stores $600 billion of value and settles $3 trillion of annual transactions probably needs more than $250 million of hardware capex to maintain its security. As Bitcoin further financializes ETFs, Wall Street custody, rehypothecation, etc., it becomes more likely that the economic majority within the Bitcoin network rotates in the direction of POS. Four, 
irrelevance. A lot of people who are newer to crypto don't really understand how toxic the infighting within Bitcoin was in 2015, 2017, during the block size wars. It's one of the primary reasons Ethereum took off in parallel, and we've seen relatively little innovation on Bitcoin ever since. This is perhaps the biggest reason to be long ETH, despite my analysis in chapter one that there are faster horses to bet on if you want digital gold, Bitcoin, and exposure to smart contract platforms, value creation, the non-ETH field of L1, L2 tokens. Uh, the next Bitcoin halving is mostly a marketing event for Bitcoin's temporary hardness. It's going to be great for the memes, especially since it might fall on tax day 2024, and it'll be a milestone to mark our survival and resilience. But just know that it's also probably an illusion, as I doubt we can go much lower than 75 BPS of annual seniorage and maintain a healthy, secure network. That's no longer 10 years away, it's two. 4.3 Bitcoin mining, more important than ever, and I, um, uh, I would prefer that a Bitcoin fee market develops or that we fork the protocol to maintain a minimum viable level of seniorage to ensure we keep proof-of-work mining as Bitcoin's security model. The same reason so many people hate Bitcoin mining, yo, it's energy intensity, is the reason we like it. It's a contrarian, resilient, complementary model to what is otherwise the proof-of-stake default prevalent in essentially all other crypto networks. Mining is an industrial sector at its core which helps keep Bitcoin block production away from the financial incumbents who work for the state. The energy intensity of Bitcoin is the top attribute that makes the network less susceptible to nation state level capture. I do believe that's why authorities truly hate proof of work mining. It's got nothing to do with climate change or local energy market dislocations and everything to do with the fact that energy competition makes financial regulation much more difficult. You can be pro-environment and pro-Bitcoin mining. If you think these are at odds, you're being conned amidst a long-term information war aimed at destroying Bitcoin itself. And boy, do the status lie and lie and lie and lie. The reality is that Bitcoin mining, at least domestically, helps reduce methane emissions, balance grids, and incentivize building new renewable capacity before it can necessarily be connected to local power grids. 4.4 private transactions, protocols, coins, or pools. We face an extreme uphill battle when it comes to private crypto payments in the future. The tornado cash protocol sanctions and developer arrests remain two of the most alarming things to have happened within crypto over the past two years and things only got worse this year. The industry's challenge of OFAC sanctions on constitutional grounds isn't going so well, as both Coinbase and Coin Center lost their initial lawsuits and must now appeal to higher courts. They and other supportive policy groups remain confident in the merits of these cases, but it appears that judges so far have determined the existence of a protocol-affiliated DAO and or governance token is enough to create a sanctionable entity. That leaves three potentially legal paths for the industry to pursue truly private transactions. One, tokenless tornado, cash. Such a protocol would include contracts that are non-upgradable on day one, avoid relayers, and include no tokens, DAOs, or ongoing developer support for the associated front ends. That would knock out some of Tornado Cash's bad facts and give us a mulligan on the protocol, which clearly found product market fit as a privacy-preserving service. 
There's an EIP to enshrine this sort of service directly into the Ethereum core, and Solana has explored something similar. Two, privacy chains. Monero is the largest privacy-focused blockchain by quite a bit, despite the fact that most enthusiasm for strong privacy has moved over to technology based on zero-knowledge proofs. That hasn't really translated to success for Zcash, which has struggled mightily when it arguably should be having a moment. I think this is a failure of marketing. Government hostility is beating the privacy narrative. Momentum, uh, Zec price has only gone down historically. And go-to-market, in hindsight, Bitcoin's halving schedule wasn't repeatable as a launch mechanism. The unfortunate reality may be that a ZK-first blockchain was either too early or better implemented at the application layer on top of a larger chain. I don't want to throw in the towel on Zcash as a project, but it's certainly contrarian to continue betting on Zcash and its blockchain as the winning model for private transactions. Much more likely that a privacy-first roll-up wins the market given the liquidity already available within that ecosystem. Three, Privacy Pools, a new protocol proposed by Amin Soleimani, Vitalik, and researchers from Chainalysis and Academia would create a new hybrid approach to privacy and compliance. I think the approach could get pickup as institutions grapple with the challenges of preserving data privacy and IP protections while transacting on public blockchains. The model allows users to prove that their funds come from specific verified subsets of deposits, allowing them to provably avoid commingling funds with addresses tied to suspected illicit activities. Any entity can curate a privacy pool, making the framework flexible across a wide range of jurisdictions without necessarily breaking the fungibility of the underlying network tokens. <laughs> the U.S. Treasury is already clearly feeling emboldened by the initial result as it just sanctioned another mixer and has embraced a move towards enhanced surveillance laws that can only be described as hellishly dystopian. My belief is that humans have the right to transact freely in a peer-to-peer -peer manner without full and constant surveillance of any government. In the U.S., we have explicit constitutional protections that affirm that inalienable right, but we may have to iterate our privacy models a couple of times before the courts settle on one they agree should be protected. The Biden administration won't agree to any of them, and it's not clear a GOP treasury would be much better. The iteration and final workable crypto privacy model will likely have to wind through the slow grind of the courts for several more years. 4.5, the new Tina trade, stable coins. Why invest in BTC or ETH when you could invest in long-term treasuries whose multi-year route now rivals the dot-com bust and 2008 financial crisis. Seriously, though, I don't understand the appeal of a 60-40 stock bond portfolio in a market with so much default risk around sovereign debt, commercial real estate debt, consumer debt, and corporate zombie debt. Why would you invest in long-term treasuries when no one else wants to buy them and you know you can get liquid exposure to short-term T-bills that pay 5% via stablecoins? Zoltan is this close to recognizing that the ideal portfolio isn't 20-40-20-20 cash stocks, commodities, bonds, but 40-40-20 interest-bearing stablecoins, stocks, and crypto. Stablecoins are the most explosive growth area within crypto. Our first truly killer app, Stablecoins, settled $11 trillion on chain in 2022 and has bucked the trend and continued to grow this year. They do nearly 10x the payment volume of PayPal. No wonder the company launched a stablecoin this year. 
and are closing in on Visa's payment volumes. There are nearly 5 million blockchain addresses that transact with stablecoins every week. And you must read Brevin Howard's masterful mid-year report on the state of the market and Nick's Token 2049 and mainnet presentations to understand how the offshore Eurodollar market and onshore digital dollar market are likely to evolve in 2024. There are basically five major stablecoins slash categories in the market right now, USDT, fully reserved offshore euro dollars, USDC and PYUSD, fully reserved onshore digital dollars, DAI and other collateralized stablecoins, new algorithmic stablecoin models, and central bank digital currencies. The abbreviated sections below won't do the overall market justice, but I'll try. 4.6 USDT. Given how quickly the US dollar has been losing purchasing power, a synthetic digital dollar backed by 0.90 of T-bills, 0.05 of gold, and 0.05 of BTC might be the ideal currency for countries struggling with bank crises and high inflation. Gold is too Luddite to fully back a modern currency. Bitcoin is too volatile. And treasuries come with too much seizure risk and even blow-up risk to rely upon 100%. But add all three to a basket and you've got a killer product. Hey, that kind of sounds like USDT. Tether is the oldest, largest, and most critical digital euro dollar, and it serves as a critical piece of global liquidity and market infrastructure for crypto. Despite all of its prior controversies, reserves, commingling, uses, etc., and reserve questions, audits, collateral assets, custodians, it's had a banner year following the regulatory crackdown in the US. With more crypto activity moving offshore and bank runs at crypto-friendly regional banks like SVB, Signature, and Silvergate earlier this spring, Tether's performance has bucked the trends. At the time of writing, Tether had breached a new all-time high of $89 billion, while its primary competitor, USDC, sat at half of its previous peak. If only US stablecoin issuers could be better protected from the systemic risk these banks present to the crypto markets. For years, I have written that concerns about Tether are greatly exaggerated. I'm not blind to the risks, and I understand the domestic skepticism around the business. Tether's performance does seem too good to be true, but that's mostly because it boggles the mind how US financial policy could be so ass backwards that we hand a Eurodollar monopoly to an overseas crypto exchange, which now sits as one of the largest foreign purchasers of US treasuries. That kind of makes you think, though, doesn't it? Uh, the US government's rhetoric feels more like kayfabe. Tether has survived for as long as it has because it plays nicely with global authorities. And there's a quiet understanding that the company will surreptitiously cooperate with the US authorities long term when it really needs to. Maybe they'll get a fine in 2024, maybe. But I doubt there is much risk beyond that, as I find Vince McMahon's rhetoric more believable than the bluster out of DC. With Tether, the US government wins, offshore exchanges win, global crypto dollar consumers win, and crypto investors win. But domestic crypto exchange and stablecoin operators lose. The Tether team wins the most. Thanks to rising interest rates, Tether now books nearly $1 billion in earnings per quarter and holds $3.2 billion in excess reserves, including $1.7 billion in BTC, with the expectation they will use some of their excess profits in the future to purchase even more. From a profits per employee standpoint, it's one of the best businesses of all time, and I think it stays that way for years to come. 4.7 USDC. 
I've already written a bit about Circle and USDC, so I don't want to repeat myself so much as highlight one chart that shows you everything you need to know about USDC's year in 2023. It highlights the threat and opportunity that lies ahead for Circle as the private stablecoin issuer closest to the US government. Backed by audited deposits in US bank accounts is only a competitive strength if your banks don't go under and there's reliable access to them at all times. We didn't have that earlier this year and it caused enormous damage to Circle and USDC even though the company had nothing to do with the compliance mishaps at Silvergate the mismanagement at SVB, and the political assassination at Signature. More on this next chapter. Although USDC bounced back to its peg within weeks and never faced a single redemption issue with its customers, the psychological safety that was supposed to come with US banking relationships has not returned, and it seems unlikely this will reverse absent a change in tenor on crypto from the Biden administration. As bullish as I am on Circle and its early lead domestically, I am not yet convinced that U.S. regulators won't continue to hold them down while opening up avenues that reward the Wall Street incumbents to catch up first. The silver lining for our most tightly regulated uh, crypto dollar is, ironically, that it is still the dominant quote currency in most DeFi markets. USDC remains top dog in uh, DEX volumes, CDP collateral and money market borrows. The ETH USDC pool on Uniswap is essentially the backbone for all of DeFi. Uh, 4.8 Paxos, Binance and PayPal dollars. Um, Paxos has locked in a potentially game-changing partnership with PayPal and the PYUSD stablecoin that powers PayPal's family of apps, including Venmo. A big win in a mixed year for crypto's original New York trust company. PayPal has been crypto forward for years and even has the distinction of being uh, one of the only crypto payments uh, firms that's well covered from potentially devastating attacks from the CFPB. Uh, the PYUSD launch was a pleasant surprise, but not a shock. It makes sense that the OG of internet payments would come around to offer a stable coin in a rising interest rate environment. If the risk reward skewed negative in the ZARP environment of 2021, the sentiment would completely reverse in a year of 5% yields that would last higher for longer. I interviewed Jose Fernandez de Ponte, PayPal's stablecoin PiUSD lead, and Paxos Walter Hessert at Maynet 2023, where they made the initial announcement. In the month that followed, PiUSD 10X'd in market cap to $115 million. It fully flatlined after PayPal received a subpoena from the US SEC Division of Enforcement, but it's now back on the move. On December 8th, we saw the first new issuances, $12 million for PiUSD in a month. It wouldn't be the first time Paxos had a hiccup with a major partnership. It had a huge setback and slap in the face from the New York Department of Financial Services back in February thanks to its partnership with Binance and the Binance USD stablecoin. Following that action, Binance USD's market cap plummeted 90% from 16 billion to 1.6 billion at the end of November. Following the announced settlement with the DOJ and other financial regulators, Binance announced that it would end support for its BUSD stablecoin on Decrim 15, 2023, effectively killing the product. To add insult to injury, Binance hasn't shut down its stablecoin operations, but instead simply moved them to other Eurodollar partners. It started with TrueUSD, which has tripled in size since February, 
and more recently, Hong Kong regulated issuer First Digital, which will absorb 100% of the remaining BUSD at Binance by end of year. U.S. regulators quite literally stole this business from Paxos and sent it to Hong Kong. There's no two ways about it, and it's a small wonder that Paxos is now focusing its attention in Singapore, Abu Dhabi, and Mexico instead. 4.9 crypto collateralized stablecoins. I'm not going to front run some of the reports we have coming out in Q1, but we've got some meaty research coming out on crypto's spectrum of crypto collateralized DAI and algorithmic FRAX stablecoins, and the economics, prospects, and hidden gems for each. I'm going to hold back a little alpha here and direct you to subscribe for a little delayed gratification. A little teaser, CRVUSD, Libra, and Prisma are two of the newer collateral debt position CDP protocols that seem most promising. They allow liquid staking tokens, such as Lido Steth, as collateral that users can mint stablecoins against, while continuing to receive yield from their underlying staked ETH positions. That helps offset fees and on-chain borrowing costs. Even if these new models are still fairly capital inefficient and collateral constrained, TVL is capped by the size of the liquid staking token market. Algorithmic stablecoins are pretty out of favor right now, but I remain excited about their potential in 2024. I believe we'll see some breakouts given the general unreliability of the U.S. regulators and the need to move away from a rapidly debasing dollar as our only alternative. More flat coins, fewer fiat coins, um, 410 CBDCs, and other MEMA coins. There are two types of central bank digital currencies, wholesale between financial institutions and retail. Almost all CBDC pilots to date have been wholesale CBDCs, which revolve around transactions between financial institutions. The Monetary Authority of Singapore, MAS, is trialing a CBDC for settlement of commercial bank payments. The Swiss National Bank is piloting a CBDC to settle digital securities transactions, etc. But I take the retail-focused CBDC projects about as seriously as I take Doji and Pepe. They are fun to play with and talk about and they'll have a similar amount of near-term impact on the world. That's a good thing, too, because the way that global bankers are talking about these tools of surveillance and financial control is a bit too erotic for my liking. Unless a Masari subscriber at one of the big banks can convince me that A, CBDCs will be relevant anywhere before 2030, B, there is any hope of non-banks interfacing with them and building payment apps with them, and see these proposals will have any degree of constitutional privacy protections baked into them. I'm going to continue ignoring them and linking lazily to the most recent cliff notes from all around the world. BIS Project Tourbillon says it can provide KYC and payer anonymity with its eCash 1.0 and eCash 2.0 prototypes. Paper released November 29th, the Bank of Korea is piloting a CBDC program with 100,000 citizens in 2024. Russia is piloting a basic retail CBDC payments program in 2024 with 13 banks and a limited group of its users. The ECNY is one exception to watch. It has processed over $250 billion of transactions with 120 million wallets created since 2020 and now includes Standard Chartered, Hang Seng Bank, and HSBC as pilot program partners. There are two core concerns with CBDCs, aside from ending individual financial privacy, 
in favor of granting authoritarian governments the sort of unlimited global surveillance powers that would make Orwell turn in his grave. One, they could disintermediate banks. Ironically, this is the best risk for crypto. Elizabeth Warren would prefer a retail CBDC that eliminates the Federal Reserve banking system and destroys a bunch of local and regional banks. Fortunately, Fed governors are wise to the risk already and have highlighted the role banks play in local economies and in preventing government overreach. Two, they wouldn't be easily exportable. It's unclear how much demand there will be to export CBDCs, which may be easier to seize, monitor, or otherwise manipulate by the issuer, versus public-private stablecoins, which will likely prove more fungible and serve the role of a true digital cash and bearer asset. Former CFTC chairman and current digital dollar project lead, Chris Giancarlo spoke with me about CBDCs at Mainnet. He insists that my skepticism that privacy safeguards would ever get added to future Fed-issued CBDCs was overdone. Indeed, some of the folks at the Boston Fed are closely aligned with the early MIT Bitcoiners who worked on Project Hamilton. Ripple announced the launch of its CBDC platform earlier this year, and it seems to be in an interesting position to fork the XRP ledger that's core to its product to assist smaller central banks especially. It's got a hell of a hook to dangle in front of these bankers too. And in the clear XRP token, which has already been used extensively as a carrot in its other institutional on-demand liquidity programs with correspondent banks and remittance giants as a low-cost bridge currency between multiple currency pairs. I never thought I'd live to see the day where I wrote that, but that's what a $100 million multi-year court victory over the SEC will net you. You can read our report on the state of XRP ledger in Q3. I do take retail CBDCs seriously in one sense. I think they will be about as interesting and effective as the government's foray into healthcare IT. I like the idea that CBDCs will prove to be so painfully bad compared to private sector-driven crypto protocols that we should welcome them and let them expose themselves as inferior goods. Conclusion, if it's a helpful framing, I think of Tether Circle Paxos maker JP Morgan on the stablecoin issuer side, in the same way I think of Binance Coinbase Kraken Uniswap NASDAQ on the crypto exchange side. All are strong businesses, but they sit in different positions based on their approach to regulation and decentralization. Binance and Tether are the global cowboys who play ball with regulators when they must, but otherwise leverage huge balance sheets, white shoe law firms, and regulatory arbitrage to scale outside of the U.S. regulatory perimeter. Coinbase and Circle are the slow and steady U.S. incumbents that would benefit greatly from federal legislation, but still have true crypto values embedded in their DNA. Paxos and Kraken played by all the rules, but they chose to emphasize a state versus federal strategy. Ironically, Kraken by avoiding New York and Paxos by leaning into it, and ultimately began ramping up internationally after they got screwed over at home. Um, Maker and Uniswap have created the category for decentralized stablecoin issuance and decentralized exchange, but they are now confronting the harsh realities of how they'll have to interface with global authorities now that their projects have scaled. JP Morgan and NASDAQ are quietly poised, waiting eagerly to pounce whenever the regulated crypto floodgates open, be that 2024 or 2034, they can afford to wait patiently 
and their size, reputations, and regulatory status will help them catch up to some of the crypto upstarts. We'll cover the exchanges in depth in Chapter 6 on CFI. But first, let's make a pit stop and discuss everyone's favorite topic in crypto, policy 